Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, your host. And welcome to the These Aren't Your Mother's Crocodiles edition of the podcast. That brings you conversations with the authors of today's most noteworthy, compelling, and groundbreaking science fiction. My guest today is one of those people who, were they a movie star, you'd call a triple threat, actor, singer, and dancer. Only in this case, she's a writer, a podcast host, the organizer of a famed monthly reading series, and that's not all. She's an editor, publisher, commentator, and a performance artist. And she does all those things exceptionally well. Yes. Aw, thank you. I'm talking about Charlie Jane Anders. That's the voice you just heard. She is the winner of a Hugo, a Nebula, a William H. Crawford Award, a Theodore Sturgeon Award, a Locus Award, and a Lambda Literary Award. She is co-host of the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct and publishes the magazine Other. And she organizes the monthly Writers with Drinks series in San Francisco. And I am very thrilled and honestly a bit intimidated to have her on the pod to talk about her new novel, The City in the Middle of the Night. Hi, Charlie Jane. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. Hi. Hey, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. How are things in San Francisco? Um, rainy, very rainy, but nice. It's it's good to be home. I love San Francisco. It's nice to be back from my book tour and everything. I'm sure. And how how did the book tour go? It went great. It was really fun. I had a lovely time. Well, the city in the middle of the night is set on the planet January, which humans arrived on hundreds of years ago. Conditions are pretty harsh there, and I wondered if you could describe for listeners a bit about the environment. What What's it like on January? Right. So uh, the planet January is a tidally locked planet, which means that uh, one side always faces the sun, the same way that uh, one side of the moon always faces the Earth uh, here. And uh, so there's a permanent day side and a permanent night side. And uh, humans just live in this thin strip of twilight in between the day side and the night side, which is called the Terminator. 
And basically, it's a hazardous planet. It's a planet that has a lot of dangers and a lot of there's a lot of wildlife living um, in the night and also I think in the day that wants to eat people and wants to kill people. And it's it's a dangerous place in general. And uh, humans have been living there for probably about 500 years, give or take. I think at one point we were told that there's been 25 generations uh, on the planet. Well, the city in the middle of the night is actually really about three different cities. Two of those were founded by humans, Mm -hmm. Seosphant and Arjulo, and they're actually quite different. Seosphant is... I'd say kind of puritanical in its work ethic and very rigid. And Arjulo is a little more like Berlin during the Weimar Republic, maybe, or San Francisco a few decades ago. I wonder if you could talk about the two cities a bit and and how and why they evolved so differently. Yeah. Um, so basically, the, the reason why these two cities are different, it kind of comes from the fact that this planet is so unlike Earth and humans have to kind of adapt to live on this planet and to be kind of able to, you know, cope with how different this planet is. And uh, so basically because the sun never rises or sets and, you know, day and night are places rather than times, humans are kind of struggling to adapt to this new place. And there's the question of how do you know when to sleep? How do you know when to work? How do you know what time it is, quote unquote, and so on and so forth. And, you know, different people have come up with different approaches to this. In the case of Siosfant, the founders of that city thought that, you know, in order to remain human, in order to hold on to our basic humanity, we needed to all be going to bed, you know, going to sleep at the same time and working at the same time. We needed to maintain a strict circadian rhythm uh, like what we had on Earth. And uh, so they have like really strict curfew and everybody is supposed to basically be in the dark for a certain amount of time, you know, every cycle and, you know, everybody works at the same time, but it kind of turns into over a long period of time, it's become just conformist in general. There are are a lot of things that have come that have fallen into place that kind of mean that everybody is trying to kind of do the same thing at the same time in all kinds of different ways. And it's just become very regimented and very kind of conformist and uh, controlling and meanwhile, you know, some people rejected that and rebelled against that and kind of went off to start their own city, Argilo, uh, where basically people sleep whenever they feel like it. They work whenever they feel like it. And they kind of try to live more in harmony with, with the planet, which means that, you know, basically because the planet doesn't have a day-night cycle and doesn't have, you know, an art, has have a fixed sense of what time it is. They kind of don't either. And so everything is a little bit more chaotic. And over time, that's gotten more and more kind of laissez-faire to the point where now it's kind of just, it's a little bit chaotic. It's still, it has, it has a ruling class who are these like nine families, I guess, that are, you know, running everything. But everything is, it's all kind of ad hoc. Everything is just kind of whatever arrangements people come up with are what they do. And like there's people have like really kind of slapdash arrangements for how they're going to survive. And those nine families reminded me a little bit of crime families or something or syndicates. Yeah, they're, they're kind of gangsters. It's sort of a city run by gangsters a little bit. And you have these hints that like at various times in the past, the city of Argillo, like while still being very kind of chaotic and, and uh, everybody does what they feel like, in the past, it, it had an anarchist collective running it at one point. It also had a kind of corporate, uh, you know, capitalist 
enterprise running it at one point. It's had it's they've experimented with different systems, and every system has kind of failed. And kind of the what I thought as I was working on it is that it's up to a certain point or past a certain point, humans are never going to be able to really adapt to life on this planet because it's so different from Earth, and it's not our natural habitat. We're an invasive species on this other planet, and the most we can do is kind of just come up with you know, systems that enable us to approximate something that makes sense to us, but it's not going to work forever. And there's not, there's no sustainable solution to living on another planet where it's so different from where we came from. There's definitely the sense that humans are in decline rather than building a new civilization. They're sort of clinging to elements of the past, but everything seems to be in decay, including a lot of the technology that they use. Yeah, I think it's it's literally just that, you know, and from talking to, you know, exoplanet experts and scientists about this, I kind of got that sense from them that when we go to another planet, there's going to be some aspects of our technology. Like if we assuming we have really advanced technology because we're able to travel between star systems and everything, when we get there, some of the technology is just not going to be replaceable over time. And once you get to like 500 years of humans living on this other planet, there are certain parts that we just can't replace anymore. Circuit boards and, you know, complicated micro like I don't know, nanotech stuff is, is not going to be replaceable. We're not going to be able to get certain polymers necessarily and certain rare earth elements and certain other, you know, metamaterials that really require a very sophisticated civilization to keep producing like when you think about the amount of stuff that goes into creating the parts to make a, a, a smartphone, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen in order for that to be possible. So I thought that over time that their their technology would start to decline and it would be kind of uneven. Some things would continue to work, some things wouldn't. But I really don't like the trope in science fiction where people have either there's been an apocalypse or people have settled another planet and their technology has declined. But one way or the other, we've kind of arrived at, we're now living in medieval conditions or we're living in like 19th century conditions or 18th century conditions. I, I, I hate that trope because I feel like it's too simple. And really what would happen is that the level of technological decline would be uneven and that we would keep some things and we would just lose other things. And, you know, in fact, certain people still have pretty advanced vehicles. It's just, there's not that many of them anymore. They're hard to, it's hard to make more. You have to kind of patch them together from like parts because there's not, there's not an automobile factory building new automobiles and fuel is an issue, I guess, depending on what you're using for fuel. But it's, it's a thing where they're just trying to maintain their level of technology as best they can. And so all of their ingenuity and all of their inventiveness and all their cleverness is going into not declining rather than having progress. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of the story. It's structured so that one of your main characters, and there are several main characters, but one of them, Sophie, tells her story in the first person, mm -hmm. and the other main characters, Mouth and Bianca, their stories come out in third person. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about Sophie and her particular struggles and why you decided to use the intimacy of first person to tell her story. Yeah, I mean, I, I love experimenting with POV, and I think that uh, I've been lucky to be writing in a time 
where uh, young adult fiction has kind of come in and destabilized all of the old conventional wisdom about POV and about first person and third person and mixing them up. And I think there used to be this idea that you couldn't mix first person and third person, or especially what I do in this book, mix first person present and third person past tense. That was like a taboo. And I think young adult just comes in and doesn't really recognize all of these rules that people have clung to and just goes, yeah, whatever, whatever works. And which I think is always a good approach to anything. Like I think whatever works is always the best answer in terms of like stylistic and and voice and everything in, in terms of how much you can experiment. So, I mean, I guess Sophie, I kind of experimented with writing her a bunch of different ways, but I liked first person present for her because, because of that immediacy that you mentioned and because She's dealing with a lot of really intense stuff. Her story is definitely a kind of a coming of age story. It's about figuring out who you are and figuring out what's important to you and also letting go of stuff that you thought was important to you and letting go of like relationships that you thought were like central. And there's a lot of stuff in there where having it be like this is happening to me right now in this moment. This is something that I'm dealing with, you know, and I'm in the middle of this. That was something that I really wanted to kind of have in there as much as possible. And then the other POV in the book is Mouth, as you mentioned, and that's third person past tense, which Mouth's story is a little bit more of a Western. Mouth's story is kind of a Western that just happens to take place on another planet. And it's got all that kind of Western stuff about like, you know, betrayal and old baggage and trying to reclaim something that was lost and, you know, having like a group of friends who you're traveling around with and it's not, you're not sure if they're really friends or just comrades and like all this kind of like tough action stuff. And I, I felt like, and there's a little bit of noir in, in mouth story as well. And I kind of felt like the third person past tense worked really well with that kind of world weary, hard bitten kind of cynical, you know, been it all been there, done that killed a bunch of people kind of attitude that mouth has and Mouth is also, you know, as, it, as I was writing it, it kind of became obvious that Mouth is someone who is very distanced from her own emotions and kind of doesn't, isn't always even aware of what's going on with her and isn't even always aware of the things that she herself is doing in a particular moment. And so that kind of sense of distance and that sense of things being a long time ago and happening to somebody who's we're talking about in the third person felt really right for Mouth's POV. And I also think it's a lot harder when you've got multiple first person POVs to kind of juggle that and make it work. So I, I was actually, I thought it was good to kind of just break up the first person stuff with a third person narrator. And just, I thought that was like made it a little bit more interesting. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
Well, Sophie certainly goes through significant transformations in the course of the story, both emotional and in a moment, I want to talk about some of the physical transformations she goes through. She is the first human to really communicate with the indigenous sentient beings on January. And other humans have called these beings the crocodiles, which, you know, creates an image in an earthling's mind, your your fans' minds, like myself, as I'm reading the book, and I think, oh, a crocodile. I know what a crocodile looks like. Huh. But then Sophie is confronted by one. They live outside both these cities in the harsh environment, and they really look nothing like crocodiles as we know them. And, you know, it's very interesting to think that, oh, maybe 500 years from now, after crocodiles are extinct, you know, that people won't know what they look like either, and they'll use that word for something else. Anyway, Sophie renames them the Galette, uh, you can correct me if I if I said that wrong. The Galette, yeah. The Galette and the Galette end up playing a very transformative role in Sophie's life and in the story. Maybe you could tell us something about these aliens and and how you came up with them. Yeah, I mean, so that was a big part of my original idea, which I spent two and a half years trying to figure out how to make it work as a story. But I liked the idea of humans living in between, like endless darkness and endless light and kind of being stuck in between those two extremes. And there are creatures living in the night that we can't even understand them. They can't visit us. We can't visit them. Communicating is really difficult when you don't even share an environment and when you are, you know, such a different species. And I I wanted to kind of tell a story of first contact that wasn't as kind of tidy as they often are, where we just kind of learn their language or we we build a translator or, you know, they use mathematics to communicate or something. And I was I sort of thought a lot about how would you communicate if you lived in total darkness and you had this really loud kind of howling wind going all the time that would make it hard to communicate with sound. And like, what kind of senses would you have? So I sort of thought of these creatures who have very different senses than humans and also communicate in a very different way. And I came up with this idea that they use basically that they have these tendrils and when they, they touch each other or even a human, they can kind of, the tendrils secrete like a neurotransmitter almost that gives you information or memories or ideas or just thoughts and like allows you to kind of see what the galet that's touching you has seen or what they've gotten from another galet. And it just sort of, I loved that idea of like, nonverbal communication that is much more honest and much more kind of uh, open-ended and allows for a lot of stuff to be shared and what that would be like and what kind of society you would have with that. And it kind of ended up blending into the, one of the central concerns that I had otherwise, which is with, you know, the, on the tidally locked planet with no sunrise and no sunset, no way to reckon the passage of time. You know, how do people think about the past and how do they think about their personal past, but also the sort of larger historical past. And, you know, having these creatures that can share memories through touch felt like another way to kind of think about like how we process our our own past and our collective past and how we tell the difference between the two things and how we process stuff that's happened, you know, to us and to our people. And so that, that kind of, that all kind of all flowed together for me. And it seems to me this form of communication allows the galette to create in Sophie a really strong empathy for them. It's easy to imagine humans just looking at them and rejecting them as these frightening, sub-intelligent monsters to be hunted. 
rather than these sensitive sentient beings. But Sophie immediately, when she does connect, can have profound empathy for the galette because she understands them. She They share their experiences and culture and feelings through touch with her. Yeah, and I think it's it's actually thrilling for her because she feels trapped in a lot of ways. Even before she's sent into this dangerous situation where she first meets them, she feels trapped. She feels like she doesn't have a lot of choices and like she doesn't really know how to make her way through the world. And then she gets this glimpse of this radically different kind of experience and this radically different kind of community and this feeling of like being a powerful creature and like having this whole community around you and navigating this treacherous landscape, but being able to do it with powerful limbs. She's, she's drawn to that because it's such an amazing experience and it's such an amazing thing to experience vicariously. And so even from like the first opening chapters of the book, she's really drawn to the, the Galette and their, you know, different way of, of kind of experiencing the world. And she also knows that it's their planet and that they evolved on this planet and that they belong on this planet in a way that humans maybe don't. Well, I don't want to ruin the story, but I would like to talk about something that happens basically in the latter half of the book. So listeners, if you don't want anything ruined for you, I think you'll have to skip ahead a bit. And I can put it in the show notes where you should skip ahead too, if you don't want to hear about this part of the book. But in the latter half closer to the end of the book, Sophie actually becomes transformed physically. The Galette offer her and encourage her and want her to acquire the same abilities that they have. And so she becomes physically transformed and acquires some of their, those tentacles you were describing. And I wonder, in your view, you know, what makes her willing to undergo this really dramatic and, I gather, irreversible transformation? I feel like a lot of stuff has happened to Sophie by the time we get to that part of the book where she's been kind of disappointed by people and particularly by some of the people closest to her. And she's been through a lot of stuff that has kind of left her not really quite so ready to believe in unaltered humanity as, as she might've been earlier on. And I think that she, again, she's been drawn to this other way of communicating and this other way of having a society since she first encounters it at the start of the book and for her, it's just this amazing chance to finally, like, I think that one of the things that is going on in the book throughout, in addition to this difficulty processing the past, which is something that Sophie had particularly struggles with, um, there's also, you know, just the difficulty in communicating, the difficulty in understanding each other, other people. Sophie is somebody who's very shy and withdrawn and people tend to misunderstand her sometimes. And I think that this idea that she can find this other way of communicating that's going to be better or at least different from what she's used to is something that she's incredibly drawn to. But I think also it's just that, you know, she gets a chance to be part of this community that is really different from the communities that she's known among the humans. And it's a chance to kind of learn something different. And like she says to Bianca, people always have the same, have different reasons for doing the same thing over and over again. And I want to see something new. She wants to actually venture into the unknown and kind of let it change her. And like, there's that thing around that time that mouth the other main character kind of quotes that maxim about we judge the freedom of human beings by their ability to change in response to their environment. And humans, by our very nature, we do change. We do adapt. We do become radically different in different situations. And 
you know, I think that the human race, if, if we do make it to another thousand years from now, we're going to look really, really different from what we look like now. So I think that that's actually, it's a positive thing to think about that. And I think it's just, it's really liberating for her to be able to kind of let go of some of her limitations and embrace this other form. Am I wrong to think that her transformation has echoes of gender transition? And I guess I thought of that because they both seem like a dramatic physical change. And I wondered if you drew on your own experience. It's very different, of course. So maybe the parallel is way off and you could tell me if that's just like ridiculous. I wasn't consciously thinking about that, I don't think. And I've certainly written many, many, many stories about uh, transgender people and the transgender experience. I've written a ton of fiction about that. So I feel like if I wanted to write about transgender experiences, I would just write about them. But, you know, I don't, I don't feel the need to use metaphor to describe that, I guess is what I'm saying. But at the same time, it is a thing that I think comes out in everything I write. It's something that kind of keeps coming back. And I'm sort of interested in all kinds of radical transformations. And, you know, uh, I read an interview a while ago with the transgender author, Caitlin M. Kiernan, where she was asked about being trans and how it affects her writing. And she said that she is just fascinated in general with the transfiguration of flesh and like flesh being transformed in different ways. And I think that that's, that is something that once you've kind of experienced it in one way, you are maybe more open to or more interested in writing about it in other ways. And I think that, you know, I think it just comes out of having had that experience and letting it shape your, your writing in general. I've heard that there were moments when you felt particularly challenged by this book and, and writing it, and as, as all writers do, I think, at various times. But I wondered if you could talk about some of the particular challenges and, and how you dealt with them. Basically, what happened was I was writing this book longhand in, in blank journals, which is how I also wrote All the Birds in the Sky and some of my other novels. I think pretty much every previous novel I had written longhand in journals. And you know, what happened this time is that I just, I spent like over two years, two years and a few months, I think, just writing in blank journals, writing down a ton of stuff. And none of it was really going anywhere. It, was, it wasn't really coming together. Um, I wrote, I mean, basically, I ended up with a lot of world building. I ended up with uh, the Galat and the city of Siasfant and Argillo and that journey from one to the other. And then, you know, basically a lot of the events of the book I had written in various ways in various places, but um, I didn't have any characters that I thought were working. And I was really struggling to come up with a human story that would be at the center of this book and that would actually kind of bring it all together because you can't just have cool world building and cool stuff and just a bunch of like interesting incidents. You have to have people, you have to have like a human story at the center of it or else it's just not going to work. And so, you know, it didn't really click for me until I came up with you know, after I quit my day job at, at io9 and kind of went back and really focused on it with all my undivided attention for a while. And then I came up with this idea of, you know, Sophie who, um, and her, the thing where she kind of sacrifices herself to save Bianca from Bianca's mistake. And that leads to her being sent into the night. Basically, I had this idea from early on of, Somebody goes into the night and learns to communicate with the creatures there. And I kind of had the Gelat and I had the idea of, you know, somebody learning to communicate with them. But, you know, in some of my earlier attempts at figuring it out, 
that was something that had happened a long time earlier, and this character had just been talking to the Gellet for years, and that didn't seem satisfying. And also, I tried writing it that you know they were part of a hunting party that went into the night, and then the other members of the hunting party were killed, but they survived because they learned to communicate with the creatures instead of trying to kill them. And I didn't really like that either because I wouldn't really sympathize with someone who's part of this hunting party, especially once we know that they're hunting these creatures who are actually intelligent. So that didn't work. And I just kept kind of poking at it. And I was like trying to figure out why she goes into the night, why she's there in the first place and why, you know, communicating with these creatures saves her was like the number one problem that I had. And then once I had that, I was able to kind of sketch out the rest of the story you know, pretty quickly and arrive at like the ending that's still the ending in, in the book more or less now. So it was just a matter of finding a main character who I thought was compelling kind of. I'm truly amazed that you could do so much of your writing longhand, especially when what you've just described requires so much rewriting and rethinking. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as all writers do, I mean, writing is rewriting, they say. And so that's perfectly natural. But I imagine... Well, I can't imagine doing it in longhand, not only because my handwriting has disappeared virtually from typing for so long, but just the logistics of moving things around and changing things. So that's amazing. I mean, yeah, I find it freeing in some ways because you can't go back and edit as much and you just have to get stuff down. And then when you type it all in, that's the time when you start to thinking about kind of changing it and moving stuff around and, and just kind of rethinking it. But it's kind of good to just be able to kind of write stuff down and figure out where it's going, except in this case, it didn't really work that well, unfortunately. I read the Washington Post, so I periodically have seen some of your op-eds. And recently, you wrote about basically the constructive role science fiction can play in society. And you specifically were calling upon artists to start once again incorporating nuclear war scenarios into their work. Right. And basically, your point was that the threat of an actual nuclear war seems to be higher than it's been since the Cold War. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how the connection between the inspiration that writers and artists can contribute and how that can or might translate into hopefully some kind of action. And maybe not just with nuclear war, but all, all the threats humans face, you know, climate change and totalitarianism and racism and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I think that science fiction has a role to play in terms of helping us to prepare for the future. It's become a cliche to say that science fiction doesn't predict the future, that science fiction is always about the time when it's written. And I think that that's true. But I also think that humans are really bad at imagining the future. We're bad at looking forward in a way that's not just kind of imagining things going along the same trend line that they're going right now. I, I wrote a thing for io9 once about how humans think about the future and what limitations we have when it comes to thinking about the future. And one of the main limitations is that we can only really imagine a future that's similar to the time we're living in right now. And if there's a future that's radically different, which is going to be the case, I think, with climate change and also would obviously be the case with nuclear war, we have a hard time imagining it. We have a hard time preparing for it or trying to prevent it because we were used to kind of thinking of the future in terms of predictable outcomes that are along a straight line from where we are right now. And that's never how the future is. And I think that honestly, thinking about the future is a muscle. It's a muscle like anything else. And the more you think about the future and the more you kind of try to imagine different possible futures and different possible 
scenarios, the stronger that muscle gets and the more prepared you are for whatever's coming. And maybe, you know, no science fiction story is ever going to accurately predict what really is coming. But I think that, uh, A, we can know with some certainty that climate change is, is going to happen or that it is happening. And it's already here and it is part of our world already. It's already kind of an increasingly large part of the world that we're currently living in. But also, B, I think that people need to kind of prepare themselves for bad times that could be coming. And also people need to kind of think about how we can work together and how we can survive. And I think giving people hope and appealing to their better nature and uh, encouraging them to kind of work together and build community so that when bad things do happen, we're able to come together and cooperate across different fault lines. That's an important job that I think storytelling in general and, and speculative fiction in particular is really uniquely suited to do. And I, I think that we can explore a lot of scenarios in science fiction that just help people to develop mental flexibility and hope and and resilience and an awareness of the value of cooperation. My final question for you is, how do you juggle all the things that you do? Because you have a very prolific writing career. You do a new podcast every two weeks with your life partner, Annalie Newitz, and who happened to have been a guest on the show last year. Your monthly reading series. I mean, you just do so much. Writing op-eds for the Washington Post. What's your secret? I don't really have a secret. I guess I'm kind of a workaholic. I don't know. It really varies. Like the monthly series, Writers with Drinks, I've been doing it for a very long time. And I kind of have a groove a little bit. It's always it's always a ton of work to just find really awesome people and then promote it. Promoting it is a huge part of what's challenging because people are so distracted nowadays. There's so much else going on. Everything's on fire. So just getting people to know about a fun spoken word show every month is always kind of a challenge. I guess, you know, doing the podcast is is just fun. It's like once every three or four weeks, Annalie and I get together and just hang out in the studio and we pick a couple of topics that we think are interesting and we just kind of hang out and, and geek out. And that's like, that's just super fun and awesome. I guess, yeah, if you make your work fun, then it's easy to do. Yeah, and that's the idea. I mean, fingers crossed. Thank you so much, Charlie Jane. I really appreciate you coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me and have an amazing rest of your week. Thank you. And I've been talking with Charlie Jane Anders, whose new book, The City in the Middle of the Night, came out in February from Tor Books. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and leave a review if you've got the time, and it really doesn't take a lot of time. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf, the author of The Alternate Universe. Visit me at robwolf.net or on Twitter at robwolfbooks. And thank you so much for your support. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.